You know, when I was a boy growing up, I used to watch Sesame Street and Electric Company. Yeah, most of you don't know anything about Electric Company, but I always enjoyed those. Uh, I particularly enjoyed the songs. I liked Electric Company better than Sesame Street because I thought Electric Company had the better songs. But um, Sesame Street had the better characters, but Electric Company had the better songs. One of the songs that they had on there was a song when they were trying to, they were teaching children of different animals and different birds. And they asked the question in the song, what makes a bird a bird? The question was, did it have, is it because the bird has wings? No, because there are other animals that have wings. Flies have wings, bees have wings, and they are not birds. What makes a bird a bird? Is it because it flies? No. Is it because it sits in a nest and has eggs? No. There's other animals that have nests and lay eggs. What makes a bird a bird? And according to the song, what makes a bird a bird is its feathers. Feathers. Birds have What makes a Christian a Christian? Ever thought about that? What makes a Christian a Christian? What is it that when you boil down and you dig underneath and you get down into the root, what is down at the root of what it means to be a Christian? Out of which The Christian life blossoms and the fruit is bore. But what is down at the root? What makes a Christian Christian? Love, what makes a Christian a Christian? It's faith. It's faith. Faith. Whatever else we say about the important identifying and authenticating marks of the Christian life, none are more crucial and essential than is faith. Love, yes, love is, is, is important. And, and Jesus said, you shall know, they shall know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And, and love indeed, um, holiness, without which the Bible says, No man shall see God, love, holiness, sacrifice, being willing to give of your life for the cause of Christ as we've seen before. No man is fit to follow the king or Jesus who will not be willing to give up his, her life, take up their cross and follow him. Giving, giving indeed. All of these, love, holiness, sacrifice, giving, serving, all of these are important and all of these are needful. But faith, beloved, faith is the single non-negotiable. For faith is the seed out of which all of this fruit blossoms. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. Faith is the seed. Out of which all the fruit in the life of the Christian blossoms. Faith is the root. Faith is what we don't see. We see the fruit. But when you dig down, which the Lord does, and examines the root, he looks. Faith. To be a Christian, you must have faith. You must believe. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are saved by grace through faith. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 reminds us that we are justified by faith. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, we are reminded that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because before anything else, we must believe that he is. And we must believe that he will do what he says he will do. 
Jesus has demonstrated this all throughout his ministry, has he not? As, as we've been going through Mark, we've seen it again and again. Faith has played an, an intricate part in the life and ministry of Jesus. The woman in Mark chapter 5 who has the incurable bleeding, when he heals her, he says what? Your faith has made you well. Your faith. The blind man. Mark, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says, be it unto you according to your faith. In Mark chapter 2, when, it, when, when the friends of the man who is paralyzed lower the man down through the roof so that the man could get to Jesus, Jesus is said to have seen the faith of the friends. And he was moved on behalf of the paralyzed man. A couple of weeks ago in Mark chapter 10, we looked at blind Bartimaeus. Jesus, after healing blind Bartimaeus, says, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. Over and over again, faith is the instrument, the principal virtue that that marks out those who follow Christ, who, who please God, and who experience the joy of the kingdom of God. Faith. And as Jesus is approaching the end of his earthly ministry, as we've seen, and he's coming into Jerusalem for that final time, he again wants to reiterate to his disciples the importance of faith and how faith will be what distinguishes them. Faith will be what sustains them. Faith is what will cause them to believe and do mighty things for God. It's faith. But before he tells them of the importance of faith, he gives them a couple of illustrations that shows them that where there is no faith, there is no fruit. Where there's no fruit, there is no fear. And when there is no fear, there are no people of God. When Jesus comes to this point here in, in Mark in chapter 11, and I want us to get this, there is something very important going on here. Jesus is going to show his disciples and say to his disciples, perhaps the most important thing that he had ever said, shown to them since they began walking with him. He's going to show them the importance of faith, the importance of fruit as a demonstration of that faith. Before he does that, notice that he comes to this fig tree they're making their way back into Jerusalem for this festal weekend, this festal week that is Passover. Remember, they were staying in Bethany, perhaps and probably at the home of, of Mary and, and Martha. And now Jesus, once again, he gets up early in the morning, perhaps, and he begins to make his way into Jerusalem. Perhaps had no time for breakfast. Jesus is, is in a hurry, probably got up early and, and prayed and, and didn't have time for breakfast. And as they were making their way into Jerusalem, our Lord grew hungry. He looks and he sees a fig tree off in the distance. The fig tree has flowers on it. The fig tree has blossoms on it. And from a distance, it would seem that it should have some fruit on it. But it didn't, beloved. And because it didn't, Jesus says, now it won't. When he came to examine the fig tree, 
and he gets up close and he sees that the fig tree has no fruit, Jesus then declares that the fig tree now won't have any fruit. Jesus came looking for something. He came to the fig tree looking for fruit. And the Bible says he found nothing. Nothing but leaves. He found no fruit on the tree. And he curses the tree. He discards the tree. Ultimately destroys the tree. So much, I guess, for the tree hugging Jesus, huh? So much for the tree-hugging Jesus. It seems harsh. It's not very eco-friendly, is it? And yet, does it not remind us of a very important truth? That Jesus expects to find fruit on his vines? Does it not press home to us the importance that when Jesus comes and examines the tree that he expects to find fruit on the tree? This is a vivid picture of the nation of Israel, beloved. The Bible tells us that they were God's vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5. It tells us that that Israel was to be God's vineyard and that he dug this vineyard and that he cleared it of stones and that he planted in this vineyard the, the choices of vines and that he built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked to it to yield grapes. But when the vine dresser came to harvest the fruit, Isaiah 5 says that the vine dresser found none. He found no productive fruit. It did not produce fruit. In other words, beloved, Israel had not produced But when the Messiah came, rather than finding a fruitful vine, he found a vine that was faithless. Rather than finding a vine, finding a people who were full of faith, full of expectation for the Messiah and ready to receive the vine dresser with the best and choices of grapes. When the vine dresser came, He found nothing. In fact, John chapter 1 and verse 11, the Bible says that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He found a tree. He found a tree that looked good from a distance but was of no value to God. He found the tree that had all the trappings of being fruitful. All the outward evidences from a distance of looking right. He found a people who in their religiosity and in their traditions had convinced themselves that they were right with God. Like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Like the Pharisee in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus looked out to the Pharisees one day and he said, you are like whitewashed sepulchers. On the outside, you look well and fancy, clean and right, but on the inside, 
you are full of dead men's bones. The Bible says that Jesus cursed this tree even though it was not even the season for figs. Jesus goes to this tree and it is blossoming with leaves, but it doesn't have sufficient figs on it. And Jesus, don't you understand that this is not even the season for figs? And someone would say, this seems harsh. Seems unfair. After all, expecting the tree to have fruit even when it is out of season? Beloved, even out of season, there needs to be evidence of life. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, you preach the word. You preach it in season. You preach it out of season. You preach the word because in season, yes, the fruit will be bountiful and all will be able to see it. But even out of season, Timothy, there still needs to be some evidences in their lives. We all know that there are dry seasons in our lives, is it not? We all know that there are times when it seems that the fruit comes through hard and slow. There are times when it seems seems like that our, our crops in our lives are not being watered, that the sun is drying us up. We all know that. Perhaps some of us are there this morning. Beloved, no matter how dry it is in the Christian life, no matter how hard it gets, even if there is just, as Bunyan says in Pilgrim's Progress, little faith, there still is evidences of life. I mean, we, we look at each other and oftentimes we judge each other wrongly. Indeed, we do. We judge each other wrongly because we're looking for the fruit in each other's lives. And if we don't see the fruit that we perceive that we should see, then we judge each other not to be fruit-bearing Christians. But our Lord does not judge like we judge. As he told Samuel, In selecting David, you look at the outward things, but the Lord looks upon the hearts. And so the Lord is not asking necessarily how much fruit there is. The Lord is seeing, is there any fruit at all? Has there been any progress? I'm not concerned necessarily that your walk would look like Murph's walk. What I want to know is, does your walk look different than it did last year? Is there any movement? And if there is, beloved, there's some fruit on that vine. And the Lord has not discarded you, no matter how dry it may seem. Sinclair Ferguson says it would seem to be in this situation that the question of our spiritual fruitfulness is of immense seriousness to Christ. Beloved, Israel was no longer fruitful. She was no longer connected to the source of fruitfulness and to the naked eye she looked good. But ultimately, our fruitfulness is that we are connected to Christ. She had rejected Jesus. Jesus himself says in John 15 and 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And that was the problem. Israel. 
was apart from Jesus. For he came unto his own, even his own people, and they received him not. And without Jesus, there is no fruit. Jesus would no longer look to the tree for fruit. And then we see, too, that he would no longer look to the temple either. For they leave the tree for time and they enter into the temple. And at the temple, at the tree, Jesus found no fruit. And when he enters the temple, because there is no fruit, he sees that there is no fear. There is no fear of God. But rather than a place of worship and adoration, they had turned the temple, the temple of God, into a place of wealth and idolatry. Rather than a place of prayer, they had play, it had become a place of profit. They had come to the place where they did as they pleased. They had begun to worship the temple itself rather than the God of the temple. As the Bible says, there was no fear of God before their eyes. The temple was a magnificent structure, beloved. It was a huge edifice. The temple was divided into four parts. There was a large outer court. There was a court called the Court of the Gentiles. Then as you go up into the temple, there was a second court, which is the Court of the Women. And then as you get closer and up into the temple, there was the Court of the Jews, where only the Jewish circumcised men could go. And then as you get further into the inner sanctum of the temple, there was the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go. Because Jesus had found the temple defiled, he who should have gone into the Holy of Holies only goes as far as the court of the Gentiles. The one who should have made his way all the way into the Holy of Holies and offer the ultimate sacrifice in the temple, he doesn't go any further than the court of the Gentiles. Because the whole place is defiled. And he is disgusted. He is disgusted. He is disgusted by the exploitation. Notice the exploitation. For there in the court of the Gentiles, hundreds of thousands of people are gathering. They're hustling and bustling and they're buying and and selling. The money changers are there and they're selling pigeons. Now this was for the foreigners who would come. Because people would come from all over on this day and come to the temple. And they would come from foreign lands. And as they come to the foreign lands, oftentimes they would have to exchange currency. But you had to buy and sell into temple currency. And when you came with your own currency, you had to exchange that currency. And you better believe that you didn't get a fair rate. They were changing money and exploiting the foreigners. They're not only exploiting the foreigners, they're exploiting exploiting the poor. So here they are, they're selling pigeons. And Leviticus tells us that the pigeons was to be offered up for those who could not afford a lamb. If you were to come from a distance and, 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 and didn't bring a lamb, wasn't able to come with a lamb, or perhaps your lamb got defiled along the way somehow, when you got to the temple, you either had to buy another lamb at exorbitant prices or you had to buy pigeons. The poor had no option but the pigeons. 
And even then, they were being sold at ridiculous rates. Notice the exploitation of the foreigners and the poor, but also notice the discrimination. This was all taking place in the court of the Gentiles. The one place where the Gentiles could come and worship God. The one place where the nations could come and pray and worship God. And instead of being a place of solemn worship and instead of being a place of prayer, Jesus says that you have taken the one place away from the Gentiles. It shows an utter disregard for the Gentiles. It shows a disrespect and a discrimination against the nations. Rather than a house of prayer, as Isaiah 56 and 7 tells us that God's house should be for the nations, for the Gentiles, they had made the temple into a den of thieves, a temple of robbers. Because there was no fear of God before their eyes. And their worship had become self-centered and a perversion. And not only did they not worship, but they kept others from worshiping God as well. For what what were they robbing God of? What were they robbing the people of? They were robbing the people of their duty to worship and pray. It's the reason that God had created them. It's the reason that God had called the nations unto himself, that they would worship him, that they would pray to him, that they would recognize that he is the one and true living God. And the nation of Israel, rather than facilitating this, robbing the people, the nations of their duty and responsibility to pray, to worship God. Not only were they robbing the people of their duty to worship and to pray to God, they were robbing God of his glory. Isaiah 49 and 6 reminds us that Israel was to be a light to the nations. And Israel was to be be the one who brings God's salvation to the ends of the earth. And rather than being a light to the nations, they were causing the nations to stay in darkness. Rather than bringing salvation, God's salvation to the nations, they were hindering the nations from seeing the God of their salvation. Jesus comes in there and in no uncertain terms, he upsets the tables. And when he is upsetting the tables, beloved, he is not simply turning over tables, but he is upsetting the whole worship structure of Israel. He is turning it on his head. He is making the sacrificial system null and void. He is making temporal sacrifice useless. He is declaring in no uncertain terms that no more, no more will there be separate and unequal. No more. No more will Christ have his house divided. No more Jew and Gentile. No more man and woman. No more black and white. No more separate courts. No more separate sanctuaries. No more separateness. There would only be the house of God and the house of prayer for all nations. There would be one place. One faith, one communion, one Savior, one Lord, one people. And in a few days, Jesus would go to the cross 
and officially make the temple null and void. Just like the fig tree, Jesus went to the temple and found it fruitless. Just like the tree, he cursed it. No more will the tree bear fruit and no more will God be worshiped in this place. Beloved, I hope you see the weight of that, the seriousness of that. The whole order is turned on its head. The message that Jesus had came to bring into the world. Here, he gives it. Tim Keller says, Jesus took the object lesson of the fig tree and turned it into a public spectacle in the temple. The object lesson was the fig tree. But even as he left the fig tree, Jesus is saying in his mind, boys, you haven't seen anything yet. Wait till we get to the temple. They were amazed. They were shocked. They were in awe. And they knew Jesus had to go. Jesus had to go. But what they didn't know is Jesus knew where he was going. And that's why he did what he did. Apparently, they leave the temple and they go back to Bethany. You imagine the conversations that they had once they get back to the home of Mary and Martha. They're sharing with the disciples and they're talking about all that Jesus has done this day and what it could mean. He cursed a fig tree that was not even supposed to be in season. He goes into the temple and he's upsetting the temple. Jesus is nowhere in the world we go back into Jerusalem. And what does he do? The very next morning he says, boys... Let's head back into Jerusalem. And on the way, they come back by the fig tree again. And Peter, this time, looks for the fig tree. And he says, Lord, 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 amazed, Lord, the fig tree has withered. Now, Peter had heard the the, the words of Jesus, and he knew the integrity of the Lord. I'm sure the Lord had never said anything to Peter prior to this that that did not come to pass. I am sure the Lord has never made a promise to Peter that he broke. Peter had heard the word of the Lord. He knew the integrity of Jesus. And on several occasions, he had witnessed and experienced the power of Christ. And yet, He stood in unbelief that the fig tree was withered according to what Jesus had said. Lord, look! Rabbi, look! The tree is withered! And I can imagine that if Jesus is anything like you and me, he'd probably look at him and say, yeah, well, duh. (laughs) Excuse me, who do you think you're talking to? Jesus is so much more kind than you and I. So much more patient than we are. And he looks at Peter lovingly. I'm sure he looks at Peter compassionately. And he says to Peter, have faith in God. Have faith in God. I, 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 am, I am hard-pressed this week. I was thinking about this all week. I am hard-pressed, I think, to find a more important commandment from Jesus to his disciples than this. Boys, have faith in God. Have faith in God. 
If you would have faith, you would see that not only is the tree of no use, but more importantly, you would understand that the temple is no more. Have faith in God. Look to God in faith. Look to Jesus in faith. Because you do know that this is all that God ever acts of his people. That is all that God ever requires of his people is that they would believe in him. Have faith in him. Trust in him. Have every Sunday morning, beloved. Every Sunday morning, our goal in the songs that we sing and the sermons that we preach is so that we might be encouraged to have faith in God. I said, that's why we come together. So that we might encourage each other with those simple words. Man, just trust in God. Have faith in him. Jesus wants to teach this and drive it home to his disciples, the importance of faith. Notice that he doesn't point to the temple. He doesn't point to religion. He doesn't point to formalities. He doesn't point to tradition. He doesn't point to heritage. He tells them about prayer. Why? Why? Because, beloved, nothing says faith like prayer. Nothing says faith like prayer. Faith is the ultimate expression of dependence and resignation and trust in God. But if you're anything like me, and I know you are, then your struggles with prayer are many, aren't they? And there are many obstacles to prayer. Many obstacles to prayer. There's selfishness, greed. Our prayer lacks, our prayers lack power because we pray according to our own will and not God's. We pray according to our own selfish desires because we think we know what's best. And we think that we know what God ought to do. And so our prayers lacked, lack effectiveness. Our prayers lacked efficacy because we pray according to our own selfish desires. Our own greed, our own lust. Isn't that what James says? James chapter 4 and verse 3. You do not have because you do not ask. But another problem is not just you don't ask, but even in your asking, you do not receive because you ask wrongly. Because you ask so that you can spend upon your own passions, upon your own lustful desires. You don't ask according to the will of God. You ask according to your own will. Obstacles to prayer is selfishness. Another obstacle to prayer is just doubt. And I'm convinced that this is the biggest obstacle to prayer. We just don't believe God. We just don't believe we're double-minded. We believe God with our words, but we don't really believe him with our hearts. And in our hearts, we remain skeptical. This is true. I know this is true because whenever prayer is the last thing we do and not the first thing we do, then it is because we really don't believe that prayer can really do anything. We really don't believe that prayer is more powerful and more important than anything else we can do. And therefore, whenever we say, well, I guess all we can do now is pray. That is because we really doubt that God 
can do what he says he can do. That God will keep his promises. James chapter 1 and verse 6 says, Let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Even, beloved, even the prayer for more faith needs to be prayed without doubting. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Even praying for more faith needs to be prayed, believing that God can grant more faith. Obstacles to prayer is selfishness and greed. Obstacle to prayer is doubt. An obstacle to prayer is just Jesus says here is just unforgiveness. Those who pray in faith must know that the God to whom they are praying is a forgiving God. They must know that the only reason that they can pray is because they have been forgiven by God. And since this is true, Since this is true, no one should ever believe that God would answer their prayers if they are not also willing to forgive others. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. A man once came to John Wesley and said, Sir, I never forgive. And John Wesley replied to him, Then, sir, I hope you never sin. (laughs) No matter, no matter, beloved, what someone has done against you, it pales in the comparison to what you have done against God. And if you would dare to pray to the God who has forgiven you, what a small thing it is for you to stand in forgiveness of others. This Reminds us that our faithfulness in in prayer is important. And the fact that our prayers can be effectual if we would just have faith in God. And I, for one, am, am one who is on this journey with you. And I know the struggles that it is and the work that prayer is. You look at a text this morning, however, Jesus gives us some, some ways that we would make our prayers more effectual. In fact, he tells us how we might have faith in God and therefore have our prayers become more effective in our lives. And how is that? When you pray, he says, have faith in God. Have faith in his sovereign will. Have faith in his sovereign will. Know that God knows best. Trust that he is able to do whatever is necessary and that needs to be done. If there's a mountain that needs to be moved, pray for the mountain to be moved. And guess what? If the mountain really needs to be moved, God is going to move it. That's why you can pray for the mountain to be moved and then in faith trust in his sovereign will to move it. You trust him. You pray for healing. And if it is healing that is really needful at that time, then healing will come. 
Brian Chappell says that God always answers prayer in one of four ways. Yes, no, not yet, or measurably more than all you ask or think or imagine. The key is having faith in his sovereign will. Trust that he will accomplish what needs to be accomplished. Not only have faith in his sovereign will, but have faith in his goodness. Know that God knows best and whatever he does is good. So that whenever we pray, we know that whatever God does or does not do is good and best for us. God has the best intentions for us. Honestly, honestly, would you, would you withhold from your child something that you had and you know that they need it? Would you withhold from your child and consider yourself loving something that you know that your child must have at that moment? If you think that well of yourself, why don't you think that much of God? God is far more loving, far more gracious. He's so much better than we are. He loves us more than we ever thought to love our children. If there's anything, That is absolutely, positively necessary for the child of God. When they pray, God will grant it. If you would only believe. Trust that he is good. Trust that he is faithful. Trust that he will answer prayer with what is right. Garth Brooks said that some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayer. Can I get amen? Because he's good and he knows what we need and what we don't need. When you pray, have faith not only in his sovereignty, have faith in his goodness. And lastly, Have faith in his forgiving grace. The Bible says that if I cherish sin in my heart, that the Lord will not listen to me. That the Lord will not listen to me. And so when I come to God in prayer, first I have to believe that he is willing and able to forgive me of my sins. Have faith in God that his word is true when he promises that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You got to believe that, that God delights to forgive sins. In fact, In fact, believe this, beloved. Believe that your mountain of sins can always be removed. That your sins don't pile up so high that the prayer of faith cannot move that mountain into the sea of God's forgetfulness. If you would just pray in faith and say, Lord, forgive me. For I have sinned. Just ask. Just ask. If you would only ask and believe that Christ who died and was raised again is able and willing to forgive you of all your sins. This is what Jesus says. When you stand praying, Believe that you have been forgiven. Have faith that your sins are not a hindrance between you and God. 
Have faith that the cross of Christ is really effectual. Have faith that his blood has really pleaded your cause. Have faith that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father and he is there making intercession for you every moment of every day. Have faith that when you don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit comes along and makes up for what you don't know to say. Have faith in the God who has redeemed you. He delights to hear from you and he delights to move on your behalf to grant unto you whatsoever is needful in your life. Have faith. Have faith, beloved. Have faith. That Jesus has promised that he would never leave you nor forsake you. Have faith that the cross is yours and it empowers your prayers every moment of every day. And all Jesus requires is that you would have faith in God. I don't know about you, that, that, that has moved me this week. It's all he wants. Have faith in God. I pray. I pray. And that would be your portion this day and always. Let us pray. Lord, our prayer this morning is for faith. We pray to believe you, Lord. So much in our lives is unbelief. So this morning, according to your word, we desire to have faith in you. Lord, and I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't have faith even for the forgiveness of their sins right now they would know that they can call upon the name of Jesus in faith and be saved he doesn't require anything more than that they would believe Father we know that according to your spirit you're able to do all this and more. We pray that you would answer this. We pray that you would answer this prayer and be willing right now to change hearts and lives. This moment for all eternity. We pray in Jesus' name.